When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a hard fact of life that life can be hard, and that might sound like bad news, but the good news is that therapy works, and BetterHelp can help you find a therapist to do what you need to do to stay on track. Therapy is whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and like some tools to help, or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work. Whatever you need, BetterHelp can help. I use therapy from time to time to help me sort through challenges, emotions, or just to ensure that I'm on track for the things that are important. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. And special offer to Man God Law listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash ManGodLaw. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash ManGodLaw. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob, freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan about man and God and law. That is Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, and Van Morrison singing Bob Dylan's I Shall Be Raised. That's Joni Mitchell taking the piss out of Dylan while she does it, and Van nearly eating the mic. Dylan looks a touch agitated, kind of pacing the stage playing the guitar, and Joni seems like she's just tickled pink to be singing, dancing the boho dance in and around Dylan's incredible guitarist Larry Campbell, and messing with Dylan's hymn. Honestly. If I had to choose three artists, and only three formative artists, if I had three musical wishes, if there were only three poetic champion composers, these might be my three. And if there were two, and maybe there are, it would be Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. Now, there's B.B. King and Richard Thompson and Aretha Franklin, Elvis Costello and Paul Simon... To the ranking of the greatest of the great, there really is no end. Right there, far from their best on a baggage tour that did the best that it could when they were doing far from the best that they could, I still cannot imagine life without them. How history will treat these artists is already creeping up on us. Van Morrison seems to have gone mad. 
He was always angry mad, a bit wacky perhaps, and he has also recorded the same album for about 30 years running. But as a great poet once said, he's got a new one out now. I don't even know what it's about. But I'll see him in anything, so I'll stand in line. With regard to Dylan, and this being season three of the podcast, and it's still the tip of the iceberg, you know, you know, you know, it's nearly impossible to run out of things to say about him. I've written a book about him, too, as you know, about man and God and law. The spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan is available for purchase right now, so go get it, and we'll continue the conversation in that way, too. And what about Joni Mitchell? She's an unparalleled creative force, a radical personality, a radical artist, a universe unto herself, and she knows it. The Beatles are their own universe, unparalleled. Neil Young has had a run of the table of musical mastery, too. Give me Prince or Stevie Wonder, give me Tom Petty. But really, Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, they are the ones. And what better way to get into the depths of these two artists and how they intersect than by speaking with David Yaffe, author of Bob Dylan, Like a Complete Unknown, and Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell. David is an esteemed and eminently creative music critic and scholar, a professor of humanities at Syracuse University, and his new substack, Trouble Man, Musings of David Yaffe, is a wonderful wistful way to journey through pop music and pop culture with a true maven and storyteller. I highly recommend it. And there's a link to the Substack in the show notes wherever you are listening right now. If you haven't stayed up for hours talking about music, your favorite songs and artists, who's the best in a toe-to-toe steel cage deathmatch of a song or a album, or if this obscure ditty or that other one or this bit of gossip or that story that you heard is really true, then you haven't lived and get a taste of that right now with David. He is the second guest in an incredible lineup of music writers and thinkers who will be joining me this season. More on that at the end of the show. No regrets, Coyote, and I really mean that. We could have talked all night, David and I, about these two transcendent musicians who have shaped our era, how they work, why they work, and what it all means. I'm your host, Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. This is episode three of season three. Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell with David Yaffe. Hi, Stephen. Hey, David. Good to see you. So guess what I've been doing today? Hmm? I've been reading. Guess what I've been reading? Reckless Daughter. No, I've, I have read Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell, which is a wonderful book that we're going to talk about. I was reading a, a new sub stack by a gentleman by the name of David Yaffe. Ah. It's called Trouble Man, mm-hmm. Musings of David Yaffe. And I have to ask you that we might actually start by uh, parsing a little bit of a very perfectly timed mention of some of our favorite friends here. Mm. Where you you write, the songs are my lexicon. Mm. And so Dylan says this phrase in an interview. 1997, when Time Out of Mind came out. 
and it was an interview with David Gates. Okay, great. So this was an excellent interview with David Gates. Yeah. You are citing this phrase, the songs are my lexicon, and you've got two kind of pivots or axes of, of what you're doing here. Um, more than that, but two that I noticed. The first is, is you write, uh, looking for answers in the fragment of a song. Uh-huh. That's you. And you also... The fragment of oh, song. I was alluding to a Paul Simon lyric. Beautiful. All that so remains Paul, is a fragment of song. Yeah. So Paul Simon's in here too. There's a, there's a lot of intertextuality going on. Very fancy word there. Yeah. <laughs> that may be as many syllables as I'm going to pull off in one, you know, utterance. But the second utterance I'm going to note here from you, which you are citing, Northrop Fry, secular uh-huh. scripture. Uh-huh. So somewhere in this realm of looking for answers in the fragment of a song, though we now know that's Paul Simon's uh-huh. fragment, and uh-huh. secular scripture, you've already done some musing on these themes and ideas. If you wouldn't mind musing a little bit more about the sure. fragment of a song and secular scripture through the lens, and you can pick, since uh-huh. we're kind of crisscrossing between Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan, uh-huh. you know, where, where else would you wander in this musing about the fragment of a song and secular scripture as being essential in some way to each uh-huh. of these artists, each of these philosophers' musical journey? Well, probably if I knew more about the other arts, I could find it there if I uh, was trained to do so, and if if uh, I just if my knowledge was 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 wide enough that I could find that thing. I think that I can I can find that thing. I can find that thing when I'm looking at a at a Rothko painting, for example. I can find that thing. Uh, I can find that in Rembrandt for sure. Something about the chiaroscuro. I is in that I mean I'm just saying I, it's in the other arts it's absolutely in literature it's absolutely in the other arts but it just happens that I know more about music and so I'm kind of more attuned to like finding these places of mystery and um like uh th- this idea that something is going on and so I'm trying to actually stay in the place where the artist wants to take us where the artist is aware that there's a mystery there there's something that can't quite be explained. Uh, I think that anytime somebody does something like truly, truly brilliant, you can't quite explain it. And you know, and, and when, if you're writing the, that person's biography, then you look everywhere you can look to tell this person's story and like route it out and flesh it out, make it vivid and make it uh, an, a cohesive narrative work that, that people can lose themselves into and all of that. But there's still that element of mystery that um you can't explain it i mean as as you well know bob dylan i mean when when he he drops out of college he hitchhikes his way to new york city and he's just like a bunch of other people he's like Ramblin' jack and all these other people he's like the mayor of mcdougall street you know he's like a lot of people he's reading the same books they're all into on the road they're all into bound for glory they all have like one model some of for some of them the model is pete and for some of them, the model is Woody. And Dylan was one of the Woody people. He wasn't the only Woody person. There were others. And, uh, you know, when he writes songs to Woody, that was basically based on a Woody Guthrie song. 
I don't think it's a work of genius to make Song of the Woody. Really, it's nice, but it's not, you know, we wouldn't be talking about him if he just stopped at Song of the Woody. But then suddenly out comes Blown in the Wind and Hard Rain. What happened? How did he do that? You know, Dylan is a very documented person. So there are a lot of eyewitnesses to this. People that will tell you, you know, someone was in the room when he wrote Blown in the Wind and whatever. And even when you're in the room with him and he's writing Blow in the Wind, you still can't quite figure it out, right? Like what made him what he was. And the same is true as Joni. Um, obviously, Joni was pent up. Joni had all this stuff that she couldn't talk about. And she was in an unhappy marriage. So she was repressed. And there was this beauty that was in her that came out. But how? She had no training. It wasn't her ambition. Her ambition was to be a painter. Her fallback plan was to do something in the fashion industry. These beautiful songs came out. How? Joni couldn't tell you. It just happened. And I feel like that that moment of mystery is where I just think there are things that defy explanation. So whether you have a religious worldview or whether you have an anti-religious view, that mystery is there. And it's, it's there if you're an atheist. It's there if you're a believer. Um, it's, I, um, I was in a relationship with a religion scholar and she was always laying these new ideas on me. She made me question the things that I thought, which was great. And um, at one point I said something, I said to her, I said, you know, I just think I got something. I said, I think that there is something going on. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, yes, something is going on. Something's happening here, but you don't know what it, well, it is. is. And I, I feel like when, when the great Hitch, Hitchens was dying and he was surrounded by all of his distinguished writer friends, Salman Rushdie and Martin Amos and uh, Ian McEwen, that whole crew. And Martin Amos said, um, I'm slightly to the right of Hitch on God because the majority of the universe is unknown to us. So I still believe in the mystery. And then Hitchens dying is like, oh, yes, I believe in the mystery, too. And that's where I like to be, you know, and discovering that is such an extraordinary thing. When you know, I, I've experienced this firsthand. I know that there are people who write songs that are better than they are and that the songs have more wisdom than they have. And I mean, the same thing with Lou Reed. I've spent time with Lou Reed. Very unpleasant guy. Most people report that he's usually pretty unpleasant. I mean, magic and loss did so much for me. I mean, it, I mean, it helped me deal with grief, you know? And, and um, one of the things that's so powerful about that album is that like you hear this kind of tough guy that's not very emotional and that's not gonna comfort you, but he's experiencing grief himself. And somehow having that grief come from that tough guy just makes it more powerful than if it's something sappy, you know? So, and so, yeah. yeah well in 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 your ongoing musings about the musings that you presented in this most recent substack so that's the september that's the april 19th uh, edition and it's a daily it's a daily delivery to our virtual doorsteps right you're, oh, you're putting out a piece a day or a piece every other no, day i've been doing it too much but i am um... I started it a couple of months ago and I, I have, I just counted it and I have 30 posts. Okay. That's kind of crazy. 
that's a lot of posts that's a lot i was told to do it every other day there's a guy that's been giving me advice because he has like the number two music sub stack his name is ted joya i don't know how to pronounce his name okay Um, spelled g-i-o g-i-o-i-a okay it's an italian name i think or mm, could be a spanish name but anyway um he advised me you know post at least twice a week and make sure that it's something special don't blog and i took his advice except that i did it much more often so you've you've got uh layered into the writing a lot of personal reflection and there's a lot of feeling there's a lot of motion and uh i wanted to take us back as we think about that particular way of writing about music i think is maybe unique in some way to rock journalism uh in certain ways there's an element of inserting oneself maybe this is creative journalism maybe this is uh-huh. just a trend line in journalism more generally but but this insertion of the of the personal emotion into the experience of of the uh-huh. critic of the of the writer uh-huh. you've written two very different books about the artists that we're going to talk about a little bit here so the dylan book uh bob dylan like a complete unknown it feels a little bit more like the Substack in the sense that it um you allow yourself to associate you have a a very clear division and an interesting uh division of topics or themes that you choose um it's not written in a linear manner it's thematic and reflective and associative and um, you do not shy away from sharing what you can or wish to share about experiencing Dylan. Uh-huh. Um, so it is in some sense a personal book, but it, it travels very far in associating through many, many different elements of Dylan. And you take a look at Dylan uh, through the lens of film, pun intended, musically, obviously, and, and in lots of ways. The task at hand in writing Reckless Daughter portrait of Joni Mitchell it's the task of a biographer so you've got really um, two different professions at play here two different jobs Um, when you uh, reflect back onto uh, each of these books the biography and the I think somewhat historical uh, textual um, analytical critical Dylan book with a with a strong personal feel. What what would have happened if you had switched the uh, the 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 methodology? Um, well, or was it those artists that actually invited those approaches? You know, I didn't have access to Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. so I only had access to my Bob Dylan and to other people's Bob Dylan that I found compelling whereas with Joni Mitchell I had access to Joni Mitchell so I had the responsibility to be her biographer because she hadn't had one and um she she had an aneurysm um in in April of 2015 and um she is not the voluble person that she was that I spoke to our conversations would sometimes go on for like 12 hours um and uh She's not having those kinds of conversations anymore. And I think her just her personality has really changed. She's much more gracious now. And I don't think she hates things in the same way. 
she used to hit everything. And, uh, and I got this idea. I, I was just thinking about how, like when people get older and especially if like they, they're really, really excellent at what they do, then they kind of start to hate things because they can see the bullshit of most of it. I mean, Joni could really spot a phony note. You know, she compared it to fake coming, you know. Um, Bob Dylan, by the way, even if he was available to me, he wouldn't be very available to me because he doesn't do disclosure anyway. And his interviews are kind of a performance. Joni does this too, but not in the same way that Dylan does it. Dylan is like a different character every time you talk to him. I mean, remember when the, the first John Wenner interview, he does like the, this is Nashville skyline persona and like, he, and Yon can't break it. He can't get past it. And then I heard a later interview with Yon and he was just not giving Yon anything. And he was just being very flattering with Yon and just changing the subject. Did you feel that you needed to, to break through to Joni Mitchell or was oh, yeah. she primed to, to do the work? What did it take to get her to really talk? Or do you feel that she really talked? Oh, no, she really talked. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I could fill up a whole other book with stuff that I didn't use. She talked so much. But um, the thing that uh, was the game changer was that she didn't talk to me for years. And I didn't know if she would talk to me again. And, uh, and then she decided she wanted to start t- talking to me again. Um, and uh, this was in, it was in, in the fall of 2014. I was out with a source, uh, a sculptor named Nathan Joseph. Uh, Nathan Joseph was like this very kind of tough Israeli guy, actually. This mm-hmm. is kind of macho Israeli guy. And it came from the pioneer generation. And another close friend of Joni's, Malcolm Arone, also Israeli mm-hmm. generation. He rented, he had a loft on Barrick Street that he rented to Joni. And when Joni just didn't use it for a while, so it was just like left empty. So like one day, Nathan decided to have a party. At the time, he was dating Ellen Barkin. <laughs> this like super macho sculptor guy. You know, dating Ellen Barkin. The and voice of theme time radio hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Nathan Joseph. Yeah, uh, I mean Nathan Joseph is like like he's sort of like Elliot Gould or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like very really tall, very masculine guy, and uh, so Joni shows up when Nathan is having this party, and so first she's pissed off like, hey. What are you doing having a party? This is my place. But then quickly Joni kicked in and she started to socialize and have fun. And and then eventually she turns to Nathan and, and she and she kisses him. And he's absolutely terrified. This guy who's dating Ellen Barkin is terrified when she kisses him. Because he thought, oh, my God, this woman could destroy me. Mm. Now, I don't tell this story in the, in the book, but that feeling is the feeling that I really wanted to convey in that book. of being completely overwhelmed by this person. Mm. You know, scary what she had, you know. And so they, they did sleep together for like a year, very casually. They weren't committed to each other. Um, I think he still had Ellen Birkin going on and she was dating Don Elias, the, the drummer. 
when it ended and they just became friends, she was so relieved. I mean, I mean, he was relieved. He was relieved that it was over because he didn't, she didn't destroy him. And he felt much more calm just being her good, good friend. And she, in fact, she wrote a song about him called Good Friends. Hmm. It's the first song on Doggy Dog. So this guy, I was out with this guy and we were just kind of hanging out, having fun. We barely talked about Joni. We just were just hanging out and we had a delightful time. And I get an email from Nathan a couple of days later and he said, good news, Joni wants you to call her. And I hadn't talked to her in six years. But during those six years, I talked to everybody else, about 60 people. So eventually I come out to Los Angeles and she wanted to know what everybody else said about her. <laughs> and that became the book because she wanted to one up every person's story because she's a very competitive person. Mm-hmm. And she also thought that her memory was always better than anybody else's. So like she never, you know, she wanted to fill in the gaps on every story. And so that was the way I got beyond her kind of ranting and fo- focused the ranting on a particular story. Cause she would always have something to say. And she wanted to have the last word. Some fragment. You needed to find a fragment of a fragment. story That's to right. tie it to. She said, you're going to get a lot of half-assed stories here because I kept on changing the subject so that I could get her to talk about everybody. Whereas if she had been her way, she would have talked on and on about one person. Do you know what I mean? And so at one point she said, you're going to have a lot of half-assed stories here. And I said, well, by all means, give me the whole ass. We have an example of one of these that I didn't know from another one of your... Uh... From your, another one of your stacks, Joni Mitchell's Deepest Cuts. Mm-hmm. So you you read to Joni Mitchell, and we spoke uh, spoke recently with Sylvie uh, Simmons, who was Leonard Cohen's uh, biographer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's uh, a nice segue. A poem. Now this is a poem that Leonard Cohen. You did you ask him to share something with you that you could share with Joni? Well. I had talked to Leonard. I had this incredible experience with Leonard the, 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 the night before my final interview with Joni. And um, he wanted to show me that poem. So he sent me an email with that poem in it. So I I'll read it so we I can think, hear yeah. it. Master he was- poet, master painter, most subtle technician of the deep. You are indeed queen undisputed of mind beauty star-breasted, disguised as a ravishing piece. You change the way women sing and the way men listen. What an astonishing victory over the unforgiving years. And you read it to her. I did. And she responded in kind. (laughs) Well, it was was interesting because she was used to trashing him, you know, (laughs) and um, she'd been trashing him for years. Leonard Cohen, she was trashing. Yes, yes. Yeah, she thought he was a phony Buddhist and... She just thought every song, every song he writes has the phrase naked body. It's <laughs> like, you know, like she was like, oh, he's always about conquest, you know, like first we take Manhattan, like you know, everything's a conquest for him. But everything about that melted because, and I had talked to Leonard about what a hard time she, because she was giving me a very hard time that week, actually. I was lucky to get that interview at the end of that week because she was giving me a very hard time. And she was in a bad mood, which is a whole other story, which I can tell you, but it's a whole other story. Um, But um, he said to me, he said, 
Joni doesn't seem well disposed to me. I don't know why. Uh, and then he said, um, but could you tell her that I would love to see her? And uh, we could meet in her beautiful home, or we could meet at my home, or at another place of her choosing. And if not, that's okay too, because love is eternal. So I conveyed that message. And she, all of the negative stuff that she had prepared to say about Leonard just completely melted away. Mm. And she gave him she told me to give him her number and even the, the best times of day to call because her times of day were kind of unusual. Right. I realized, by the way, that the best time of day to get her was about 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. And I had been in the habit of calling her at like 5. But 2 is better because if you got her at 2, then nothing bad has happened yet. Five, it's likely that something bad has happened and it puts her in a bad mood. It, it that was, means that she was just so extremely sensitive to everything that was happening around her and her her protection was uh, was a kind of fury, a kind of, of yeah. anger. Just, yes, things pissed her off and they were often related to money. and just, For example, the reason why she was in such a bad mood that week that I had that final interview with her was because... Um, as you know, Joni's put out these archives now. She's put out two volumes of the Joni Mitchell archives. But, um, and she was under contract to do that way earlier. And she, she wanted to compete with Dylan's bootleg series. Right. She, she thought, hey, if you can do that, I want to do that. And um, she decided she just didn't want to look at the past. She found it painful. And um, so she wanted to just shut shut the whole thing down and um there was the matter of that that um, there's a guy named joel bernstein do you know who that is i know the name yeah joel bernstein you know uh, like kind of part of the dylan right. CSNY sure. crowd and, and uh he was involved also with theme time radio hour i think joel yeah. bernstein yeah and he he um he took the cover photo of um for the roses uh-huh and he, and he did the skating shots for the open, co- the, the the inside of the Hegira cover. Not Norman Seif did the cover, but he did the, the skating shots. Um, anyway, uh, so um, Joel Bernstein was to be paid $50,000 as a consultant on this um, project. And since Joni decided to kill the project, she would have to pay him $50,000. And that put her in a really bad mood. You know, comparing the sort of the legacy making, the archiving, the the uh, um, machinery that, that Dylan's team has created over the years is incredible. They've saved everything. They have um, captured just about every kind of media. There's the Bob Dylan Center. There's... Um, yeah the the bootleg series alone is just this massive um capturing of public consciousness the legend of dylan is held incredibly tightly and skillfully by jeff rosen and company Mm -hmm. is Joni mitchell essentially operating solo 
does she no. have that kind of machine though that really is legacy making? I mean, she's been very public, obviously, just in this past month, right? There's been a real, uh, yes, a real yeah, public a reemergence. Time. Yeah, amazing time to be Johnny Mitchell, and amazing. I, I think that it's given her a great boost mm-hmm. of energy, and I could see when she like strutted to the stage of the Grammys. She, you know, her physical therapist was there with her, but still, I could tell she was in a good mood. Yeah, that was that was lovely. But I, I um, you know, I mean, she's got this manager, Frank Gerondo, and um, this this uh, this woman that's assisting with her. I mean, she's got like a little bit of a team around her, but it's nothing like that. But I, I, I think it's it's a different kind of project because the thing that makes it similar is that many of us who are devoted to Joni, we have some sense of amazing archival stuff that hasn't been released and should be and mm-hmm. should have the sound cleaned up. And one one remarkable thing that was done was the uh, the new master of song to a seagull. The, the mastering got botched on the original record, and Joni was like so pissed off about it because David Crosby didn't know how to produce an album. Right, you mentioned this in this for in this piece yeah. that we just mentioned. Yeah, he did not know how to produce an album. Um, he he knew how to do other things, but he didn't mm-hmm. know how to do that. And I mean, I think he, he, he knew how to produce an album in the sense that like he knew how to get a great performance. Although Joni didn't really think so. She thought that he would, he would miss the best takes. She, she didn't think he was even good at that. <laughs> but, but, but I would probably give him that, because it's such a beautiful record to me. It sounds very well produced, except for this mastering issue where what happened was um, he left the, um, he, he wanted the, the overtones of the, the grand piano to be captured. And so there was too much of a signal to noise and it produced a, a hiss. And so it doesn't sound like it was recorded the year that it was. It sounds like something that was recorded decades earlier. You know, the, I mean, it's, so it's sort of like you're listening to a record from the 40s or something, which I do listen to records that were recorded in the 40s, so it's fine. But, you know, I know that it should have better quality. So when they, they fix the remastering, it's, it's beautiful. It's like, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's as good as it could possibly be. And it's way better than I ever thought it would be. So that's that was an archival miracle that they fixed that. Um, but for example, I, I've heard um, the demos from Hissing of Summer Lawns, which by the way, you can hear on YouTube. And they're just remarkable. Mm. They are so extraordinary. And before they were available on YouTube, I, I had them on, on, on discs. And I remember David Haydu used to teach at Syracuse. And mm-hmm. I remember going to his office and I said, you've got to hear this. And it was the acoustic demo of um, Harry's house. It was either that or in France, they kiss on Main Street. It was maybe, I think it started with in France, they kiss on Main Street, actually. And it was like the demo and it's her harmonizing with herself and her like double tracking the guitar. And it was just extraordinary. And I could, he said, he heard it and he said, oh my God. He said, this is why we do this. Mm. You know, that's a perfect segue for uh, two more, two fragments I also, I, I picked up in, 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 in what you were just saying. David Heiju, who I think wrote Positively Four Street, right? Yes. And uh of course, that's the tune that Joni Mitchell cites as uh, kind of a, 
door opening tune for her in understanding Dylan's uh, ability to bring to the fore of popular music wrath of a certain kind. It sounds uh-huh. like there's a, there's there's a level of of rage, wrath, uh, anger, some some sharp edged emotions when you're describing uh-huh. Joni Mitchell's uh, persona. So I'm curious your reflections on that. But you also mentioned, and I had not heard this before, when I when I have heard Joni Mitchell calling someone a fake, uh-huh. I always assume she's talking about Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. To call Leonard Cohen a fake, my goodness, that's uh, that's taking <laughs> that's that's the far edge. But but somewhere between the fake and the wrath, somewhere between Fourth Street and uh, yeah. you know Leonard Cohen's little half apartment. Um, I don't know, reflections, reflections on, on Joni's wrath, Dylan, the fakery. Well, that's a big subject. I would start with saying that. um, So the thing that blew her away when she first heard Positively Fourth Street was that you had this kind of conversational confrontation Mm -hmm. and she had no idea that you could put that into a song. You know, it just didn't even occur to her that you could put something like that into a song. And uh, then she thought, my God, if you can do that, you can do anything. It was, and, and because she was, she was in the folk scene, right? In a very minor way at that point. This was really her, the 65 was her first year as a songwriter, really. I mean, she'd written one song called Day After Day in 64, but in the 65, she writes Urge for Going and a couple of other things, but Urge for Going was the one that, you know, it was a minor Canadian, it was a minor country hit by a guy named George Hamilton IV. And it was a song that she recorded eventually. And it's on the hits and misses. She recorded it during the blue sessions, actually. Um, and then it was released as a B-side. Um, but but anyway, uh, so here she was, just like, didn't expect to be a star at this point, 1965, just kind of starting out and, and doing the things that you can hear on volume one of the Joni Mitchell archives. Uh, doing uh, Nancy whiskey and 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 things like that, as imitating Baez, imitating Judy Collins, because they were the people to imitate. And then she ended up not liking them personally, but they were the first exemplars. Um, but um, when she heard that, okay, first of all, since she didn't like Pink Bold being imitators, she was immediately suspicious of Dylan because she thought that he was a Woody Guthrie imitator. So she didn't think his singing was interesting. I don't know how she could have missed the writing, but she just didn't think he was interesting because she thought it was derivative. Um, but as soon as she heard that song, first of all, it sounded nothing like Woody Guthrie. And she could tell that it was something that was original and startling. But then Joni still had a quest for beauty and Joni had a beautiful voice, which Dylan did not have. And Joni, Joni's exemplars go, going back before Baez and Collins were, you know, Billie Holiday and mm-hmm. Bing Crosby and just the whole great American songbook. And um, so she wanted to take that personal confrontational style, not always confrontational, sometimes confrontational, sometimes other all the, all of the multitudes that could be part of a conversation. She wanted to take that and make it beautiful, mm. you know, cause she thought that 
this thing that was startling to her was at the expense of music. So she wanted to have that, but then make it more like the great American songbook. What do you mean at the expense of music? She thought, cause it was like, it was almost like hip hop or something. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, it was conversational. So the, I don't know if there's a beautiful way. I think that it would be kind of like comical if to, to try to make it beautiful. Mm. I mean, if you could imagine what Bing Crosby would have sounded like singing Puzzle before Street, it sounds like you know, <laughs> an SCTV routine or something, you know. She must have loved Dylan Sinatra albums. I know, exactly. I say. <laughs> That's full circle. It's, it's really full circle, isn't it? But yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, okay, this is what I mean. Bing Crosby sang both sides now. Frank Sinatra sang both sides now, right? Now, I suppose they could have sung Blown in the Wind. It would have been pretty corny. But I suppose they could have done, or, you know, a Dylan song that I think could be covered by a lot of people very beautiful is um, Tomorrow is a Long Time. Sure. Because Elvis Presley did that. Elvis did it. Rod Stewart did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, um, oh, you know who has a beautiful Tomorrow is a Long Time is uh, Nick Drake. Really? Yeah. He didn't release it, but it's on a, it's on a box set. It's like on a demo. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, but anyways, I, I like if there obviously there's certain Dylan songs where you can imagine where they are beautifully covered, obviously, many, many, many. Um, but that particular song, I think the whole point of it is that it's meant to be kind of ugly. And that if you're not making it ugly, it's not in the spirit of the song. It's supposed to be hostile. And and that was what kind of shook her up that you could even do that, you know. And obviously, like when Joni got older and her voice changed her singing became more dylan-like in a way Um, but she didn't see that coming this is young joni and she just had the 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 voice that she had then and then her idea was how do i make something beautiful with this was there a point just on the voice i've thought about this regarding dylan as well just with the cigarettes right where she really knew if i don't do something to manage this now i am going to lose two and a half octaves, you know, within, within a certain amount of time, my instrument will be gone. I will need another instrument. Uh-huh. I, I don't know, you know, Dylan legend has it had the lay lady lay, right. That was right. supposedly the time where he stopped smoking yeah. for 10 minutes. Right. Right. Um, did she talk to you about that, about the smoking and the voice? Yes. But, but it, none of it was, it was, it was all delusional because she had this idea that she had vocal nodes and that it was the vocal nodes that caused her voice to change, not the uh-huh. cigarettes. But when I, Larry Klein told me that Joni tried to quit smoking at various times when they were married and um, she became so impossible that he just said, please start smoking again. Because mm-hmm. it was just, and by the way, at one point she got pregnant and she wouldn't stop smoking when she was pregnant. Hmm. 42, year old, 42 years old, having a high-risk pregnancy, and she would not stop smoking or, or anything else. But no reflection on that. I mean, just, just a heavy, heavy addiction that really there, there was no daylight between that and any other reality. I don't think so. And, and I think that she was going to embrace sounding more like, you know, Billie Holiday on Lady in mm-hmm. Satin or something. Right. And which, exactly, which is exactly what happened. 
Right. And um, she's also just, I don't know about now, but when she was in that period of her life, um, she was always thinking about what was happening. You know, like she was just, for example, when we talked about the Mingus album, I asked her if um, she was a little daunted by the fact that she like was having to be a quick study because she didn't really know that much about Mingus to capture him, to capture his character, to capture his story, and and to set his his to put lyrics to his final melodies, you know, while he was dying of Lou Gehrig. And she said, "Oh, I, no, because I only think about what's happening. I didn't think about that. I think about what's happening." And and what does that mean? I only think about what's happening. I think she just meant I've got the song to write. Uh-huh. I have a job, you know, and I'm experiencing everything. I'm getting to know this person. I'm getting to love this person. Uh-huh. You know, she loved his whole spirit. She loved everything about him, and uh, and she wanted to tell a story and she wanted to get it right. But I mean, the thing I meant was that like this is within a few months, he would lose the, the ability to speak. That's really what I meant, that there was times wing a chariot going on there. And for most people, it, it, would, it would be hard to not be aware of it. Mm. So, yeah, you know, this, this, uh, this tower of song here, mm. those, these, these uh, three who were born with the golden voice, Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, and Bob mm. Dylan. Mm. Um, do you see them as three separate branches of song in the three separate floors in the tower of song with Hank Williams, you know, Hank hacking uh, on another floor. Do, do, can you imagine any of them existing without the other, where are the areas of, of influence or in yeah. fact, are they just sort of bringing in uh-huh. endless amounts of content to become whoever they would be as musicians, as poets, as performers? Uh-huh. Um, well, I'll are they archetypal? I would say that uh, they all represent song as literature. You could um, have a beautiful song with mediocre lyrics. And if the beauty of the song compels you, or if the power of it compels you, then you can enjoy it. But then you, you, you know that you're hearing placeholders, but they're kind of fun because the song is fun and you're enjoying it. And a, a great melodist, could get away with murder and have mediocre lyrics. It happens. It happens all the time. Uh, you, whereas you you seldom have great lyrics in the absence of hooks. You seldom have that. Hmm. Um, I guess you know, in a way, hip hop is that. But that's I'll just put that as a separate idea. Mm-hmm. But but um, I I think um, and of course Dylan. Um, funny thing about dylan is that like there are like songs that are ve- are very cliched but then people sort of enjoy it i mean i guess i'm i feel like i'm part of the cult of dylan so that like i can enjoy like wiggle wiggle or something like it's still <laughs> kind of amusing to me that bob dylan wrote that or you know if dogs run free why not we or something you know i mean it's not like everything he did was brilliant but to me actually like having those the, the weaker songs just make everything more interesting to me because it's like it's it's the figure in a carpet or something but i mean it, but obviously at their very best and, and um this is what salvation must be like after a while that's kind of you know inside the museums infinity goes up on trial voices echo this is what salvation must be like after a while I mean, that's it. 
right? I mean, uh, th this this music will last. It will outlast us. I mean, un unless you know a totalitarian state kind of takes over and and eliminates music, or only for state purposes. If if America becomes North Korea, then we could lose all of this. But or another that, another record company warehouse goes up in smoke. Uh, plus yeah, plus plus. Right? After the after yeah. the universal fire, like yeah. we just said. But but while we have it, and hopefully you know, like after we're gone, other people will have it. We hope um, that that um, it's something that outlasts its its listener. It's something that surpasses utterance you know uh when i would teach literature i would tell students that the, the literature is um language that surpasses utterance in other it words surpasses utterance yes in other words um most of what is said serves a, a function and then it is disposable you say pass the mustard you get the mustard and now past the mustard is over. <laughs> okay. If you have your mustard and then you still say you want mustard, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. Because that served its function and it's over. But, you know, I am a man more sinned against than sinning. That surpasses utterance. There's nothing you can say to that to, to make that obsolete. Although people mm. try, they can't. And, um, that that uh, that Rembrandt at the Frick will be, keep staring at you after you can't outlast it. You can try staring back at it, but you will lose. The Rembrandt will win. And I, Dylan's songs are like that. Leonard's songs are like that. Joni's songs are like that. Um, th and um, it, it is remarkable that you have this medium that is meant to be entertainment. That, and that's something that is really on the level of great literature is also entertainment. Because, you know, in, in poetry, if you're writing for the page, there are no placeholders. You, it, the, the whole thing has to be legit. You're not leaning on music. You're not leaning on anything. Right. Like you have to create your own music and you have to, and it has to be every, every single syllable has to be justified. But it, obviously with music, you have placeholders all the time. And um, it's so much easier to teach this stuff than it used to be because of streaming, mm -hmm. because of YouTube, and especially YouTube Premium, no ads. Uh, okay. You know, um, at Sarah Lawrence, I, I taught a class called Representing Jazz, and I would have like VHS tapes with me, queued up. That was 20 years ago. Sure. So, but now you don't have to do that. Now everything's on YouTube. and. Uh, and, and, and you can teach this stuff. It's great um, to be able to do that. You know, like you mentioned Elvis Costello. I mean, obviously, I mean, everything he does is on such an extraordinary level. And um, he, uh, he read Reckless Daughter. I was really pleased because I was going to send him a book, but he'd already read it. And he loved it. It was, he, he kept on, like whenever Joni's name would come up, he'd say, well, but you know more than I do. But then he would tell me something. Well, that yeah. musicality is incredible musicality, you know another another triple threat yes um not I, everybody not everybody loves the voice but i do well it's I, so signature also oh my god and, like, and, the, like the, the musical 
now that guy really has no placeholders right that guy those those lyrics are unbelievable and um or you know the song almost blue what an extraordinary song he was so young when he wrote it and that whole story you know the whole story about about elvis and chet baker no so that song was inspired by chet baker singing the thrill is gone uh-huh. that's sort of the basis of that song and so elvis was recording um punch the clock and um he, he did he wrote the song with clive langer shipbuilding oh yeah and uh Sounds like your your Elvis Costello meter is going off. I know it's the Elvis Costello alarm or the Chet Baker alarm. We don't know. Is the place going to burn down? Are you okay? Okay. All right, but no fire, fire bad, fire Fire, bad, fire good, fire bad. I'm glad that we get to see you handling a crisis. I see. Uh, Yeah, that was solid. Uh, (laughs) I know. Yes. Oh, so so um, Elvis want, wanted Chet Baker to play this trumpet solo on it, and uh, so he was at Ronnie's. Elvis mm. went to see him at Ronnie's, and it's an amazing thing. You go to a jazz club, and like it's very easy to talk to the musicians. They're very mm-hmm. accessible. You know, it's not like going to a rock concert. And so like Elvis, so Chet was just like at the bar hanging out, and Elvis introduced himself to him. Elvis had no idea who he was. And he said, um, listen, we're recording tomorrow and we'd love it if you could play a solo on this track. And Pet said, do you pay, do you pay scale? And Elvis said, oh, I, I think we can do better than that. Do you pay cash? Chet said, do you pay cash? Yeah. And Elvis knew what that meant. Yeah. What that was for. He said, yes. And Elvis, he, you know, Chet comes in, he, does, he nails it in one two. Yeah. He gets his cash. And then Chet said, Elvis said, listen, I wrote this song inspired by you. And I would love it if you could like listen to it. And I just want you to have it. Yeah. So um, Chet started performing it actually. And Elvis really? didn't know. Yeah. There, there are many recordings of him performing in the late eighties. And, um, and so there was this documentary that Bruce Weber made about him called let's get lost. Mm-hmm. And Elvis died. I mean, but Chet died um, in the middle of the filming. And so it became a much more raw, honest documentary because of that. And um, at the beginning of the film, you hear him trying to quiet down a crowd so that he can sing Almost Blue. Hmm. And Elvis is at a screening room seeing this after Chet has died. That's how he learned that Chet had done the song. And I wanted, it was, talking to Elvis was really something because he, I would get interrupted a lot. I would get cut off a lot. He talked a lot. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't get everything in but I, I the thing i wanted to mention about it was um there's a line in elvis's song almost blue it's almost touching it will almost do which is like kind of english ironic mm-hmm. uh chet sings almost blue almost touching it will almost do mm. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. It's like a wound. Yeah. That's like, the, uh, that's the fragment of a song. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, I don't, I don't think that he, I don't think that he set out to recreate the lyric. I just think that's how he heard it. And that's how he sang it. Yeah. 
but that to me is like whoa and i yeah. wanted to know what elvis thought of it and i just couldn't, couldn't so i want to i want to um i want to circle back a little bit to uh the lexicon idea yeah. and um really actually it's a question um similar to the one that i asked uh, sylvie simmons yeah like yourself has has quite an incredible repertoire of uh of artists that she's uh, engaged with in interviews or written about mm-hmm. gotten to know mm-hmm. and um at one point she described herself as leonard cohen's handmaid in the sense <laughs> that she uh you know brought to the world what she felt had not been written about him in terms mm-hmm. of being able to describe him and obviously you've had a um an opportunity f- f- from which we all benefit to to have uh a deeply researched, deeply felt biography of Joni Mitchell. Um, you're you're now writing, well, you're writing at a pace of of, of one piece every two or three days. Yeah. Um, you write about a lot of different things. You've written about a lot of different kinds of music. Yeah. Um, must most of this is you know in the realm of rock and roll, blues, bit of jazz. I mean, you've written extensively about jazz, obviously. Um, what what is your job? going forward as a as a as a writer as a thinker particularly about music and particularly at a moment where um you know these artists leonard cohen paul simon Uh bob dylan leonard cohen obviously is gone the the these absolute titans um Uh what what is what is the role of the of the person who not only feels the music deeply but has a platform and is using a platform to write. What 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 is the role of the rock journalist critic going forward? Well, I was I was lucky that I got to talk to Leonard. I was lucky that I spent as much time as I did with Joni, and I was lucky that I got to talk to Paul Simon. Um, I was fascinated at the way his mind worked, and in the case of Paul Simon, um, he just shows you what he does. Yeah, Bob Dylan doesn't do that. Paul Simon pulls out the uh, legal yeah. pad and shows you piece by piece. Although the Dylan book that's coming, he's going to show us how everybody else does it. Apparently, right? The book, that's, right? That's yes, that's right. That's very interesting too. That's yeah. interesting that he's interested in other people like that. Uh, and I believe Elvis is one of those songwriters. He's yes. going to talk about Paul Simon was a guy that was brief, briefly enrolled in law school, and so he has this logical mind, and he he's not afraid of just showing you what it is he's not it's, it's not this diamonic threshold that he's right. afraid to cross which it doesn't I think, take it doesn't seem to take away the magic of the process no, for him it makes it more magical really yeah. because he just exactly shows you what he does if you've seen that thing with dick cavett um there are two interviews with dick cavett one where he talks about how he made bridge over troubled water and then mm-hmm. another one where he gets he's stuck on the second verse of still crazy he doesn't have a bridge and he doesn't have the third verse and he doesn't know what to do right. and just catching him at that moment you really see him in the middle of something you see his mind working and you see okay these are the number of, of keys that i haven't used and i could either go here or here but then lyrically he has no idea where he's going to go right. but anyway i um i mean it's true that like i just as i would you know get to know somebody who had talked to charlie parker you know what i mean and and like the idea of 
access to Charlie Parker is like having access to Shakespeare or something. Right. Like, and, and so, yes, if I live long enough, then people, well, I hope will be amazed that I talk to these people. Um, and um, so I guess I'm interested in how music like works in the head and how it works and, and the emotions. And, um, and then I want to create something beautiful mm. that, that make people feel something. The writing element really matters to you, though. I mean, you really, yeah. you, you put the time in to write beautifully. You are interested in creating something that's poetic. I mean, this comes out, um, I think, because it's possible for it to come out much more in the Dylan book, in, in Bob Dylan, like a complete unknown, because, you know, the framing is, is allows for more of that than a biography would. Mm-hmm. And so now um, I'm guessing that... Um, for those who want to uh, get a taste with Trouble Man musings of David Yaffe, just go to Substack and you are, you are easy to find there. That's Y-A-F-F-E on the last name. Yaffe, which comes from the Hebrew for Yaffe, of course, um, or beautiful. It's a is, is there a bigger project brewing? Is there a bigger project brewing in the yeah, musings? I, I, had, I had thought that... Um... I, 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 I did have a memoir brewing, but I'm going to have to put that aside and uh, uh, not sure. I mean, I've got, uh, I'm writing a couple of things for the guardian and uh, I uh, I'm writing for airmail mm-hmm. and um, I have a screenplay that I'm going to be working on. I don't know if in the current publishing climate, if I could have even sold reckless daughter being a, a, a straight man mansplaining Joni Mitchell and so I just have to explore like what's possible and I've heard things like well the only music book that you could sell would be an as told to by a famous person right you know but I'm, I'm still I'm still exploring what else is possible um publishing has become kind of narrow yeah and uh and i see it when i get when i get the catalogs you know i'm like really i i just uh so so it's it's just a matter of like finding like the right thing or like just waiting for like the the rules to change again because they always do change um what people say is possible now won't be true in six months Hmm. I, i mean i would be interested in in collecting um some of these uh Substack piece to a collection of essays, um, but then revising them to to be a book. I mean, not just in the same format that they are in Substack, but you well, know, I, I want to I want to encourage people to ride along with you, and um, I do think it's really um, uh, quite a uh, honor and privilege that you had uh, bestowed upon you by the the rock gods those who determine who, who shall biograph and who shall not, who, yes. who, by, who by fire and who by water. Well, I mean, uh, I, to, I went through a lot with Joni. I went through yeah. a lot with Joni, you know, um, it was, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine, I guess I could, but it's difficult to imagine doing something exactly like that. Cause the, the whole thing was a tightrope, yeah. you know, and um, it, it was a miracle that it worked out the way it did because um and, and and it was it was it was difficult being treated that way by someone that you admire so much, yeah. You know, and of course it never 
changed my admiring her. Well, as a great poet once said, you've you've got a lot of nerve yes. to say you are my friend. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so, uh-huh. I will, but I will say to you, my friend, uh, I want to thank you for the time. We've spoken a couple of times now, and it's been a real sure. pleasure. Look thank forward you. to uh, staying in touch Please. and uh, seeing what is going to be in my inbox tomorrow <laughs> morning. Uh-huh. Yeah, my next post is going to be about bad music. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, that's good news about the bad news. It's right. A, it's like, how do you know when something is bad? I have been I have been waiting for a post like that to come into my life. How's that? <laughs> like, you know, is there like an a priori definition of bad music? Is it subjective? Is it because you have a bad association with it? Or is it just bad and you can't get away from it? And its badness is just so... It, it, it's it's not about like preferring something to another thing, but it's just like the badness itself is so all encompassing. If you don't acknowledge the badness, then you can't really define the, the greatness. Mm. And it's possible that somebody that you think is great has also done something bad. Mm. And I mean, for example, like, like I, Arthur Baker did not do Dylan a great service on the way that Empire Burlesque sounded, for example. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then Jeff Rosen did a remarkable service by having that bootleg series so that you could hear those songs oh, yeah. without yeah. the production. And they, they're so good, obviously. They're, they're, yeah. they're very good. Um, but I mean, it's just various positions has some amazing songs on it. But I don't love the production of that record. And, when, and in fact, I prefer the, the live versions of those songs. That's going to be a teaser. If you can do all that in 1500 words or less, yeah. we will, we will be back for more. I, yeah. I want to talk about, I really yeah. want to talk about Michael Bolton. Cause like yeah. there, and I actually, okay. know, I know the guy who's responsible for him being in the music business. Uh-huh. And he said to me, you wouldn't believe how good his demo was. And so I'm going to have to, I'm going to see if it's on YouTube. I'm going to bite the bullet and see what his demo sounded like and just see if that's true. Maybe there was a little bit of good in that guy. The uh, the parable shall be explained. Yes, we'll see that. Now that <laughs> that's a teaser. That's a teaser. That's a teaser. Hasn't been written yet. So season yeah. two. I'm like that's Paul right. Simon stuck on the second verse. I'm still crazy after all these years. Well, if I have yeah. done anything today, may I merit to be your Dick Cavett as you <laughs> seek. It's an honor. <laughs> yes, I talked talk to him too. We will. We'll look forward to that story another time, but yes. I just hope that, uh, you know, he was, he was, um, he, he was, he was revealed as revealing as he was in those great, great interviews. Cause he, he, he oh, yeah. everyone, those were amazing. Amazing. Rock interviews. No, he I, really I, is I, a, icon. The, the, I, I interviewed him twice. And the first time he was a little spotty on his memory, but then he wanted to reschedule and he consulted with his producer and he got the notes from the show, but from the Woodstock <laughs> show. And then yeah. it's, then he was interviewing me. Yeah. Well, he knows how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It was extraordinary. Yeah. Right on. All the best to you. Take sure. care. Bye-bye.
this has been episode three of season three of Bob Dylan about man and God in law. Visit mangodlaw.com for events, episodes, and more about the book about man and God in law, the spiritual wisdom of Bob Dylan. It is indeed now available wherever books are sold. I'll be in Jerusalem, New York, Columbus, Cleveland, Mansfield, and L.A. in the month of May. Come find me and say hello. Next up, an incredible conversation with Scott Wormuth. If you have not heard about Scott's work, please Google it now and discover what might be the most interesting and the most simple explanation for how Bob Dylan works today. We had such a wonderful conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you in two weeks. We are proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Check out all of the stellar podcasts for music lovers at pantheonpodcasts.com. And did I mention the book, the book? Yes, I'm fired up. Find About Man and God and Law, The Spiritual Wisdom of Bob Dylan, wherever fine books are sold. I'm also... And still, your host, (laughs) Dr. Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thank you so much for coming, and see you soon. You see me on the street, you always act surprised. You say, how are you? Good luck, but you don't mean it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.